1: Fish Bites is back again. This is Eli Sussman, managing editor of Fish Stripes, guiding you through the beginning of the Miami Marlins offseason. Uh, we're going through a bit of a transition here on the pod. Danny Martinez is away for an extended period. No doubt he's been the leading voice of this Fish Stripes podcast network in 2019. I hope to get him back on the airwaves and the website at some point in the future. But in the meantime, we need a plan accordingly. So you will hear a lot of myself and some of the other staff members handling the hosting duties. Danny stepped up and he made Fish Bites a truly weekly program for the first time ever. One that consistently weighed in on topics that fans are passionate about. And I was so proud of his coverage. That's why we're going to find a way to continue doing it in the same spirit that he did so that you guys still enjoy the pod and Recommend others to subscribe on whatever podcast platform they prefer, as well as on fishstripes.com. you can find every episode up there. Coming up on this episode, an exclusive interview with Adam Jones, Chief Revenue Officer of the Marlins. Jones was hired as soon as new ownership came in two years ago, and since then he's been extremely influential in the process of rebranding the franchise's image and restoring relationships with fans and local business partners. The changes you've already noticed from the ballpark to the uniforms to the ticket and concession pricing and those that will be coming to the ballpark in the near future, that's Adam Jones. So please stay tuned for that. Hear what differentiates him from many other Adam Joneses in the baseball world and otherwise he really is a unique talent and a leading mind in terms of innovating sports franchises and we're pretty fortunate to have him. But before all that, there's still work to be done reflecting on the 2019 Marlins season and what we've learned from following this team. I've picked out a dozen stats, half of them positive and half negative, a mix of team and individual stats from the past season that are especially insightful. Uh, some of these you've already seen mentioned, maybe on Twitter, at Fish Stripes or my personal account, incorporated into articles that were on the website at some point. But for the most part, these ought to be unique. And new to you, next level analysis that will encapsulate what we've learned from following the team this season. One, that they came in with low expectations of finishing in last place. And true to that expectation, they did finish in last place. Uh, A lot of lows along the way and not all that many highs to keep us really entertained. So if you were following that regular season all the way through, this is something that will reinforce what you may have noticed, and even more importantly, if you had checked out at some point for uh, understandable reasons for different entertainment and you didn't necessarily see everything that went into this season, uh, I think this will be very helpful in pointing out the key takeaways that actually matter in 2020 and then moving forward beyond that. I'm eternally grateful to FanGraphs, Baseball Savant, and Baseball Reference for the research assistance, both in this case and for a lot of the other stuff we do with Fish Stripes. All those tools highly recommended and they helped me identify these 12 takeaways from the 2019 Miami Marlins season. Sandy Alcantara game score of 50 or better in 10 of his final 11 starts of the season. That's where we're going to start, with Sandy, the all-star representative of the Marlins this year. I wasn't shy of pointing out that Sandy was somewhat of a depressing representative for the team, because he honestly did not pitch all that well in the first half. He had those couple high moments, one in his first start of the year, and then unforgettably against the Mets, a complete game shutout, and one that took only about two hours to complete. But aside from that, he was very inconsistent in the first half, especially on the road, and it raised some concerns about what exactly he would become here in his rookie season and he put all those concerns to bed during the second half of the season which was really by far his superior half of the year now there was some luck involved with this one batting average on balls in play during these final two months of the year in august and september opponents hit barely 200 against him when they actually made contact and put it in play that's abnormally low even for a guy that manages contact the way he does that being said, the results are just terrific. In those eleven starts, combining for a two seven eight ERA down the stretch. And for those not familiar with game score, what it does is it atti- attempts to assign a single number to evaluate the performance and the results that a pitcher had in a given outing. Uh, and fifty is right about average. The maximum score is actually over hundred, and it is possible to get below zero if things really blow up on you early in the game but it combines the length of the start, the base runners you allowed, the strikeouts, and the how deep you pitched into the game. Uh, it's traditional more to just point out quality starts when you go ex- more than six innings or allow three earned runs or fewer, but I find those to be pretty arbitrary, those milestones. Game score itself is a little bit more specific because it accounts for the base runners, and it prioritizes the depth that you go into the game, and that's what made Sandy so valuable this year to the Marlins, making every scheduled start, and in so many of those starts, working three times through the order and even a couple times was beginning the fourth time through an order, and that's something that is such a increasingly rare in Major League Baseball today, even by ace pitchers and Cy Young candidates. The fact that he was able to do that was so impressive. The innings that he racked up were a franchise record for a pitcher in his rookie season, and he's not abnormally old for a rookie. This was just his age 23 season, celebrating his 21st, 24th birthday just a month ago. But anyway, you sliced it, it was impressive. Bottom line results, especially down the stretch. So the adjustments that I saw him make using his sinker more often, that's a pitch that across baseball is becoming uh, less popular. And for most pitchers, it's just not very effective. This was such an encouraging stretch for Sandy, considering how polarizing he was as a prospect, with some evaluators convinced that he's best utilized in the bullpen and working minimal innings, and others seeing that high ceiling that he had based on the velocity and the movement that he generates and other pitches aside from his sinker that complement it, based on this stretch that he had in August and September, that definitely swung the conversation to the, to the latter and seeing that future where he could have a very significant role starting on a contending team. That's what the Marlins are hoping on, and it couldn't happen to a better guy. Moving on to the Marlins' offense, 20 times this year they were held scoreless, the most in franchise history, and you could see it coming. I mean, they didn't invest all that much in improving it over the offseason. Their big free agent acquisitions, and I say that very sarcastically, Neil Walker and Curtis Granderson, you put those guys combined, and they weren't anything close to a league average hitter this year for the Marlins. By the end of the year, Granderson was entirely buried on the bench. And so they were relying on some of these young guys to take a step forward. Uh, Brian Anderson did. Uh, Garrett Cooper did, now that he was finally healthy. And there weren't a whole lot of super encouraging stories. Uh, Jorge Alfaro, to a lesser extent, and we're going to talk about him later, but 22 times held scoreless that made up almost once a week throughout the entire season The big concern with that is that this was a consistent issue throughout the year. Their longest streak of having games where they actually scored, consecutive games with at least one run, was 15 straight games. They had won those streaks from mid-June to early July, and then again for the final 15 games of the season. Something that a lot of the industry can agree on is that those games at the very end of the year are the least meaningful statistically. So I'm just going to throw that one out and say that really the only encouraging stretch for this offense came right in the middle of the year before that All-Star break. That's when Starlin Castro started to wake up, a guy that's probably not going to be with the team this year. That was when Garrett Cooper had returned from one of his several injuries and was at his absolute hottest stretch, really barreling the ball consistently. And it just was a really incomplete offense the whole year. You were just guys had their hot streaks come and go, Uh, brian anderson after the all-star break and the run support wasn't there guys like we talked about already sandy alcantara for all his big strides he took this year he had a 6 and 14 record because he had won the worst run support in major league baseball trevor richards had i think even worse run support than sandy did before they traded him to the rays in the middle of the year Uh, one of the factors that contributed to this aside from just a simple lack of impact talent was the highest team ground ball rate in major league baseball Uh, That was something that was also an issue in 2018, but taken to a new level this year in 2019, where even the feel-good stories, the breakouts, like Harold Ramirez, is extremely reliant on ground balls, something that helped him beat out a lot of infield singles, but also makes him more vulnerable to double plays. Marlins, I believe, hit into one of the highest double play totals in the league. Um, Maybe not the highest, because they simply didn't have a lot of base runners on first to be doubled off. Uh, but nonetheless, you understand the issue here. Uh, the fewest home runs in Major League Baseball, that's a big part of it. In this era where it's a lot of all or nothing, uh, you can blame the ballpark for part of it, but honestly, uh, the lion's share of the blame just comes down to the players and the front office for putting these players together, uh, some of whom simply didn't show up as expected. The silver lining to all of this is there's really nowhere to go but up for the Marlins' offense, a lot of the players that could potentially leave via free agency did not have strong years offensively. Uh, a guy that they would have had a tough decision on, Miguel Rojas, signed his contract extension a few weeks ago, very well-deserved. Someone who, for the time being, is in an everyday role near the top of the lineup based on a variety of improvements he's made to his offensive game. That's not necessarily what he'll be doing if this team turns the corner and becomes very competitive for a playoff spot, but nonetheless, he'll have a role uh, Bottom line is they're going to have to wind up spending some money in free agency to add to their current crop of offensive players because it's it's really not much that they have in place already. There's still room to improve whether it's in the outfield or at first base, and they have plenty of room in their payroll to look into that, and there will be a number of interesting guys that should fit into their spending comfort level this offseason, but they're going to have to bid against other teams and win that bidding something that we really haven't seen them do at all since new ownership took over heading into year 3 that's going to be a step that they need to take is actually invest <laughs> invest in the most direct level in improving some of these weaknesses that the team currently has and put it all together and this is an offense that would be much more consistent let's talk base running runs that's a stat from Fangraphs that combines stolen bases, taking extra bases on balls in play, uh, how you avoid grounding into double plays, and etc. cetera. More on that. Uh, just these different factors that contribute to what you do as a base runner and how that compares to the rest of the league. In particular, we're starting with John Birdie, who in his rookie season was worth 6.4 base running runs above average. That's essentially the same as a 2010 version and a 2012 version of Emilio Bonifacio. And 2016 D. Gordon. Those guys had comparable playing time to Birdie, about half a major league season in a regular role, and they were so valuable just with their legs alone. Uh, for Birdie, nearly twice as many stolen bases as any of his teammates this year. That's despite time spent at AAA. He missed some time with injury and oblique issue, and yet 17 steals, constantly going from second to home on singles, from first to home on doubles. As I said, base running runs, it factors all that into play. John Birdie, in particular, what stuck out was his maximum running speed, his sprint speed of 29.8 feet per second. That's from baseball savant. That's elite. That would you really in the top few percent of the entire Major League Baseball in terms of how fast he's moving at his very best and how often it is that he reaches that sprint speed when he's on the bases, no matter his physical condition or exactly where he has to run. He's a guy that is a big, not a. I'm not gonna say a breakout star. He's a breakout player for the Marlins. He's a breakout contributor, a big piece that they're gonna need in 2020 because he's on the short list of their most valuable players. Definitely during the second half of the season, that's when he started starting on a consistent basis, either at third base or center field, and a little bit of shortstop in between when Rojas and Brian Anderson were injured. There is good reason to be skeptical about Birdie's bat. He did still strike out a little bit more than the typical hitter. Uh, The power showed up surprisingly. Some of that has to do with the juice ball, I guess, and maybe you could roll it over, but I'm not sure he's a guy that necessarily will hit double-digit home runs um, consistently year in, year out. Uh, He is someone that will find the gaps, and even if he doesn't find the gap, again, it's his legs that allow him to turn routine-looking hits into doubles or routine-looking outs in the infield into hits just a really big surprise for a guy that's in his late 20s. For whatever reason, uh, he didn't quite get a significant opportunity at the major league level until now, and some of that is justified if you look back at his stats. He was a poor performer at AAA for most of his career. The power was non-existent back then, and yeah, even just getting on base was a challenge for him against lesser competition, and all of a sudden just something clicked for him, and it's been a really good story, and it been very useful for the Marlins as I, as we've already covered their offense was awful and one of the bright spots was John Birdie a guy that just individually he did a lot of interesting things once he got on base and you could see how that affects subsequent batters when the pitcher has to worry about a guy potentially stealing uh, not just second base but third base as Birdie did on a couple of occasions it really gets inside your head And it changes the way that the defense has to play, knowing that those extra bases uh, are coming if a hit finds grass in front of them. He's a really interesting player, someone that they snagged on really a no-risk minor league deal. And now they can just retain him as a controllable player for the next handful of years, uh, league minimum next year, and then the year after that. Eventually, he'll come up on arbitration, but we'll just take it one year at a time. And for now, he looks like one of the ultimate utility men that Major League Baseball has to offer and one that the Marlins have not had at this quality in recent memory. Nice find by the front office a year ago and a big part of what they're going to be doing in 2020, no doubt. Speaking of base running runs, John Verdi was one of the lone bright spots for the Marlins in that aspect. As a team, 23.9 base running runs below average negative 23.9 base running rounds above average was their team score this year as an entire roster and remember birdie was at a positive 6.4 the team as a whole negative 23.9 you take out birdie they would have been worse than negative 30 either way it's one of the worst marks the national league has ever seen it was the worst mark in all of mlb in 2019 the worst for the marlins in their franchise history uh, again this stat is coming from Fangraphs graphs in their database and it's the third worst for a National League team over the last 100 seasons. I look back on it, comparing it to National League teams because of the obvious difference, DH or no DH, and how base running is a more significant factor in the National League when you know there's going to be more bunting coming in play from the pitcher spot and the way that batters have to adjust around the pitcher spot. And it, the, the differences in the game made it easier to compare to other National League teams uh, there have been some other bad American League teams. Either way, this is this uh, this is this was ugly for the Marlins in 2019. And it was very disappointing. I'd say about as disappointing as any other aspect of the team is that they did not try to make themselves better on the bases and do what they can that way. And that's something that I believe they spoke about definitely coming up in the 2019 season is they acknowledged that the power hitters weren't going to be there. They had guys that had questionable on base skills and that in the opportunities that they got on base they would try to force the issue and be aggressive and to some extent that aggressiveness hurt them in this category and in a lot of other instances it hurt them because they, they weren't aggressive at all they did not follow through on that promise a big issue was grounding into double plays as much as we like what Rojas did overall as a player this year he grounded into too many Starlin Castro, especially during the first half, but even during the second half when he caught fire, he was a guy that did it all too much. Harold, Harold Ramirez couldn't keep the ball off the ground. They had so many of these different players that did not like buy in all that much to the launch angle revolution and that so often just buried the ball into the ground and didn't give the base runners an opportunity to do much. Um, but even when they did, uh, the Marlins were pretty passive in terms of sending runners. John Birdie had the green light, and very few other runners did. Rojas was a guy in particular that had a low stolen base success rate, and as a team they were picked off. One of the higher totals of any team in the league, just being picked off bases, not necessarily trying to steal. The way that they utilize pitchers being at the plate, um, that's been an issue going back a few years under Don Mattingly, is how these pitchers have really struggled to hit and to get down bunts effective sacrifice bunts and how base runners have worked off of that situation knowing that the bunt was coming it's been pretty disappointing over the past 100 seasons only the 2002 and 2003 brewers among national league teams rated worse than the marlins in this category there's some internal improvement coming from let's say magnaris sierra who's out of options next year he'll very likely be on the roster he's a guy that shows a lot of promise here john birdie coming back Starlin Castro, Martin Prado going away, Neil Walker going away. It's going to depend, again, on who they spend that free agency money on and which of these young young top prospects actually stick in the majors and what they do. Uh, Monte Harrison is a guy that profiles as a really valuable base runner, so we'll see where that goes. It needs to improve because in this ballpark, if they keep the dimensions the way they are, then, yeah, it's going to be difficult to build a power-hitting team here but you can take advantage of the dimensions in other ways. The Marlins failed miserably to take advantage of their surroundings. Brian Anderson. You know that has to be a positive stat, right? Anyway, you slice it the most valuable player on this Marlins team, especially defensively. Eight defensive runs saved at third base, five defensive runs saved at right field. That playing time split between those two positions, third base and red field, and to be legit great with the glove at those two positions, it has no precedent in Marlins history. There's never been anybody quite like that, used in those spots, and so successful in those two spots. If you look across all Major League Baseball history, it's really hard to find a guy in one season who played those two positions and played them so well. We got a taste of that, of course, in his rookie year of 2018, where he was maybe a little bit disappointing as a defensive third baseman. Uh, they didn't shift him to right for that reason. It was only because, by necessity, they were low on outfielders and moved him to right for the majority of his rookie year, and he really found his footing there. Uh, the one constant across both years was the throwing arm. That was very accurate and very precise. I think he took that to a new level this year with some amazing highlights that we've shared with you on Fish Stripes, and I'll probably upload one with this podcast when it goes up as well in the attached article version of it. He is, yeah, he's really been impressive. The fact that he didn't have any experience whatsoever in right field earlier in his pro career, Uh, even in his amateur career, I don't think there was much of many reps for him at that position. So the way that he's been able to adjust to it has been a a big boost and something that has serious long-term implications for the Marlins. The fact that he could play either position, he was always thought of as a third-base prospect coming up, and this year he took big strides at that position. His reaction time looked better. His hands were better. His accuracy on his throws across the diamond were a lot more consistent. The athleticism that he has is something that you don't necessarily expect. He Just walking, looking at him walking around, um, you may see him as a little awkward or stiff, and that's just not the case at all when he's between the lines. So he turned a lot of really great highlight plays this year in addition to all of the routine ones. And it's interesting to project what exactly his role will be with this team moving forward because the pipeline for future third-base prospects looks really dry. You expect him to stick there, but the way that he's played in right field uh, this year as well as last year, is yeah, it's such a big asset to this team, and the reality in the way that baseball is trending is that you won't see as many players necessarily fixed to one position. The versatility over the course of the season is what wins games, and if that is what it takes then anderson looks to be up for that challenge and the marlins should consider him still utilizing him in that position even when the competition isn't there at third base and even if they have a plethora of options in the outfield it's going to depend exactly on what the rest of the roster is comprised of but he's going to be a fit no matter what that's the fun part about it we've been very vocal about him in recent months as an extension candidate no word on how that is progressing or whether it will Regardless, he is under team control for another four years, and it's gonna be a fun four years for Marlins fans because at the very least he has is a very good everyday major league player who still has the ceiling to be even better. Uh, he'd, in my opinion, he'd be the easiest guy to project as an all-star for the Marlins in 2020. Always inside the park. Lewis Brinson failed to hit a home run in all 248 played appearances for the Marlins. Only Billy Hamilton came to bat more often in the majors this season without going deep. Now that we have the juiced ball, everybody's supposed to have you know, these occasions where if you put a solid swing on it, it will carry further than you expect. And to Brinson's credit, maybe, maybe you give him credit for half a home run because he hit one. In Colorado, this was shortly after being recalled from AAA in August, to dead center field, projected at about 428 feet, if memory serves me right, 428 feet, and it didn't get out because Raymil Tapia leaped over the wall to bring it back and rob him.
2: Center field and deep. Tapia going back, and he leaps!
0: Did he not think he's got he did! What a grab! One second. But another Lewis Brinson
2: can't believe it how about that catch it's to be on the highlight reels for a long time wow
1: that was the closest that he came at any point uh, not a whole lot of warning track power to speak of and there's not a whole lot to be encouraged about with Brinson where at worst you expected well his rookie year was what it was there's no way he could take a step backwards and he did. The strikeout rate remained pretty consistent. Uh, The issue was when he made contact, it was worse contact. He didn't have those occasions where he ran into a ball and hit it 10 rows deep down the left field line. Didn't have that pull power. Uh, Didn't have that opposite field power either. He came back from AAA with a willingness to use more of right field, um, but not with any authority that he was hitting the ball. Overall, in 2019, his average exit velocity, it was down three miles per hour from 2018. Across all his major league time, he barreled the baseball. That's as defined by baseball reference, six total times that he got it on the barrel of the bat and put it in play. Christian Jelic, whos he'll always be linked to no matter what, if you look at his 2019 season, a good week, and he was hitting six barrels. A good week compared to Brinson's nightmare of a season there's still this unusual split between his weighted on-base average and his expected weighted on-base average. Now, this is usually a tool that we use to identify lucky or unlucky hitters because it looks at all their quality of contact and it compares it to historical averages and just sees whether or not it felt for a hit or not and whether it should have. If you compare his splits each year in his major league career, even including his cup of coffee in 2017, he's been unlucky in this regard. Uh, The problem is, even if you factor in, Normal luck in this situation. He's still one of the worst hitters in the league and a guy that you don't really see having everyday playing time as a starting outfielder, which would be, yeah, which would be a pretty ugly turn of events considering what the Marlins originally billed him to be to this Marlins team. It could it wouldn't be all that shocking if they found a way to part ties with him over the offseason uh, because historically, I looked into the numbers, he's going to be entering his age 26 season in 2020 And nobody, as an outfielder in baseball history, has hit as poorly as he has in as many opportunities and played appearances that he's had, entering his age 26 season, and gone on to any sort of significant career. Uh, For the most part, there's no one even, it's been on his level of incompetence to this point in his career, at these ages of his career, trying to compare apples to apples the best way we can, when adjusted for league average, it's been... A nightmare and no sugarcoating that thankfully the Marlins have a lot of outfield alternatives because they're going to be needing them <music> Jeff Brigham's improved stuff Brigham allowed a 178 expected weighted on base average on his slider in 2019 just putting that in perspective it's right in between renowned closers Roberto Osuna of the Astros and Carlos Martinez of the Cardinals and what they allowed on their slider the dominance of that pitch is pretty critical for Brigham moving forward because he made that transition from being a middling starting pitching prospect to one who has an interesting potential as a reliever. That decision was made entering 2019 when he was still in AAA, and what he made an adjustment was cutting out his changeup almost entirely, making him a two-pitch pitcher, fastball and slider, and he actually throws the slider at an extremely high rate, one of the highest rates in baseball almost 50% of the time. So he's going back and forth between the two pitches in almost any count, although the slider is frequently used as the put-away pitch with two strikes. What happens also is that probably helping the slider be so effective is that his fastball velocity has played up. He got his call up with the Marlins in September 2018 and made a few starts, a few uninspiring starts. It was at the end of the season, and it was for this guy that has a history of some injuries. So you always wonder exactly what his body was feeling like in September of 2018 when he got that call up after the minor league season. His average fastball velocity was at 92.9 miles per hour, less than 93 miles per hour. Compare that to 2019, it spiked all the way up to 96.6. And I feel like this went under the radar because Brigham, although he had some good stretches with the Marlins this year, he wasn't necessarily put in that closers role for any significant amount of time. Uh, he was pitching a lot of low leverage situations, even in deference to guys that were not getting the job done. Again, that was Don Mattingly's bullpen management. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, some of the choices are hard to justify in any way. But Brigham's fastball, his fastball velo, went up nearly four miles per hour. When Adam Connolly made that kind of jump from being a starter and a reliever and did something similar last year, I feel like that got a lot more attention than Brigham did. I mean, his delivery is not as unusual as Connolly's is. Uh, he didn't have the type of track record in the majors. I mean, for a variety of reasons, he was considered more of a fringy player, and I can understand in some ways why it didn't get as much attention, but it should have. It really matters. The way that this fastball is played up and the results that he's getting on the slider, it's not a coincidence. This improved stuff is really valuable for him moving forward, and in my eyes, on a Marlins bullpen that was pretty disastrous this year, Uh, Aside from Harlan Garcia, who we're going to spotlight in a few minutes, there's just not a lot of guys internally that you definitely trust to be part of a strong bullpen moving forward. Uh, Brigham, I feel, is more likely than not to be a keeper in this new role, and it was a good job by the Marlins to experiment with this rather than giving up on him entirely. He's going to be 28 years old entering next year, so not necessarily someone whose stuff will continue to improve, but if he just stays at this level and he... Experiment some more with how to like Rotate these two weapons that he has uh, He's someone that you can see uh, Making a pretty big leap in a short amount of time Across all Major League Baseball Relievers do this They come out of nowhere uh, They figure out exactly how they want to Maximize their filthiest stuff And build up those swings and misses And then they really put it all together pretty quickly So he could go either way uh, might, He might be a non-factor at this time next year Or he might be their closer At this time next year I'm excited to follow the storyline, and I just wanted to bring up his name because his stuff, improving the way it has, it gives the Marlins an interesting asset heading into next year. Wouldn't you like to see the world the way that Jorge Alfaro does? To me, it's like he's playing a different sport than everybody else, and the number we're pointing towards here is 50.4% chase rate. That's according to Fangraphs. The numbers vary a little bit depending on the source. But about half of the pitches thrown to him that are outside the strike zone, he swings at. And that's something that just does not have any recent precedent at the Major League level in terms of players that actually stick at the Major League level. It's the worst on record that Fangraphs has for a player with at least 250 plate appearances in a season. There are some familiar names that are close behind him, relatively, but... Pablo Sandoval, Salvador Perez, Corey Dickerson, these are guys that multiple times have ranked near the top of the league in their chase rate. Not in the, not 50%, but in the low to mid 40% range. And the difference being that those guys consistently make contact, well, at least more reliably, they make contact on those bad pitches than Alfaro does. And there's nothing inherently wrong with being a bad ball swinger. The thing is you actually need to justify that by putting those balls in play every once in a while. This is actually an improvement in one sense. It's the worst chase rate that Alfaro has had in the majors, but you look at the contact percentage on these pitches outside the strike zone. In 2018 with the Phillies, it was only 52.9% contact on these bad pitches, and that jumped up this year about 10%, so 52.8%. So more than half the time, when I swing at these bad pitches, he's making contact. But the rest of the league, That's that pales in comparison. Guys are in the 70s and 80s. The top of the league is usually about 90% on its bad pitches. It's a bit of a red flag to me in that, I mean, pitchers' stuff are only getting better. There's more instruction out there about how to design your own pitches, and how to maximize it, um, how to tunnel your pitches with each other. That's been the trend across the league is that strikeouts go up and up and up because pitchers more often can throw their pitches out of the zone and miss bats with it. Alfaro just takes it to an extreme. That's why he strikes out so often. Uh, one of the highest strikeout totals in Marlin's single season history, even though he didn't actually have a qualified season as a catcher and one who missed a little bit of time with injury and who sat a little bit more frequently than your normal primary catcher does. Yeah, he, he didn't even bat 500 times this year, and yet he struck out, yeah, over 150 times. Well, it's a bad combination. It's one he's been able to overcome because of his hard contact that he makes when there is contact there and the way that he runs, especially a typical four catcher to get down the first baseline as fast as he does, he's really entertaining. I enjoy watching him. I'm not fully convinced that he's uh, everyday primary catcher on a great team uh, because of this issue. He's not identifying pitches the right way. If he was consciously making that choice, then you would see someone that is making more contact on these pitches. But the combination of chasing and still whiffing when he's chasing is. Alarming, to say the least. I promised before we would give Harlan Garcia some love, and here we are. In particular, it's with his change-up dominance. He allowed a 129 weighted on-base average with that pitch, nearly 100 points better than in 2018. Last season, he gave me a big scare, the way that he was in the rotation early on and then quickly faded, and then they brought him back into the bullpen, they... He kept switching up with his role, and in whatever role he was getting hit hard, he was getting hit hard with every of his pitches, including his changeup, but especially his fastball. There was a point last year where he was just one of the worst pitchers in the majors. He had that gopheritis. Uh, home runs were up, not quite as up as they are right now, but he was more susceptible to them than anybody else. He, he was in a really bad funk with both his stuff and perhaps even mentally, emotionally. He just was not in a good place. As 2018 went on, and I was worried exactly how he was going to bounce back. He started this year in AAA New Orleans, and he got got called up, and you didn't notice immediately anything was different. But then as the summer wore on and as other bullpen options faded, he had increased importance. We got to the end of the year, and Harlan was, I think, pretty much consensus the best reliever in the Marlins bullpen. You guys voted him that way when we had our Fishies Award voting last month. He's a really interesting guy moving forward, and the biggest factor in that to me is going to be his changeup. Fangraphs provides estimates of weighted pitch values during the course of the season. For Harlan Garcia, his was worth about four runs above average for every 100 changeups that he threw this year. At that rate, it was one of the very best in all of baseball, regardless of role. It was ahead of the National League ERA leader, Hunjin Ryu. It was ahead of old friend Zach Gallen, who gets a lot of acclaim for his nasty changeup. Harlan's pitch isn't as giffable I mean, he doesn't whiff as many batters as some of these other guys do with their changeup. But he gets soft contact. He got slightly more ground balls this year and years past. It's just a really nice weapon in his repertoire. And so unlike Brigham that is consolidated into two pitches, Harlan has been able to lean in to this changeup and he's been able to keep batters enough off balance in interchanging it with his fastball so that they don't know what's coming. And it had a lot of success this year. He was stranding runners more effectively than a year ago. And just the bottom line, run prevention with an ERA in the low threes. He's going to be an interesting piece moving forward. And it's nice to see him go this way because this year could have gone a very different way with him falling out of favor entirely had things carried over from 2018. Instead, he bounced back. And it's with this changeup that you're going to want to follow a lot moving forward. <laughs> The intentional walk discrepancy. Watching intentional walks isn't as painful as it used to be now that you don't physically throw the four pitches. Just a signal from the dugout will suffice. Still with your team, you want there to be situations where your pitchers are aggressive and challenging hitters. And as an offense, you want to command some respect in those situations with, with runners on base. Uh, an intentional walk is a sign, of, a very flattering sign, that they aren't certain that they can get you out In a tough situation For the Marlins It got pretty ugly In that their pitchers allowed 52 intentional walks During the course of the year Their batters only drew with 16 Allowing over 3 times as many intentional walks As you draw yourselves Is an indictment of how non-competitive you are The fact that teams are never In a situation where they have to put you on Usually because they're leading In the first place already And that a lack of trust that Don Mattingly had in some of his pitchers, that so many times he had them intentionally put opponents on base rather than challenging them and giving them an opportunity to prove themselves as young pitchers at the major league level. During the entire first quarter of the season, as you guys remember, Marlins got off to a 10-31 start, which was the worst in franchise history, it had people talking about this being one of the worst teams ever, and although they rebounded a little from that since, during that entire... 41 game stretch to start the year nobody on the marlins was put on base intentionally zero intentional walks for the marlins lineup through a full quarter of the season so all those 16 were drawn from that point onward as we got later in the year it was yeah it was pretty embarrassing the fact that you just had all these names and all these situations and you couldn't force the other team to feel vulnerable you net the when your opponent just feels comfortable against you. That's kind of the ultimate sign of how far away you are from being where this rebuild is supposed to take the Marlins. I Now that is coming back uh, against some of our expectations and our some of our wishes, just something I implore him to do, particularly early in 2020 when he still has these young players that is trying to figure out exactly what these pitchers can do in the majors, ones that don't have long track records. When in doubt, you want to have these pitchers challenging the opponents and seeing if they can miss some bats in those tough situations with runners in scoring position rather than putting someone on. You don't want them constantly facing opposing pitchers in high situations rather than real batters. I didn't like this whole philosophy that Mattingly has had because this is not a one-time affair. They may have actually allowed more intentional walks in 2018 than they did this year. It's it's definitely part of his DNA as a manager to be cautious and to try to seek out favorable matchups. Uh, while actually taking on more risk in the process because if you can't actually retire the weaker matchup then it's just more runners on base to come around and score there were numerous times this year when Marlins walked or uh, issued a hit by pitch that brought in a run with the bases loaded when you have these young pitchers that kind of volatility is going to be there but I'd rather see them in I'd rather see them challenged I'd rather see them put up against uh, real offensive players and let their natural stuff take over than trying to cop out and then embarrassing yourself that way. The final positive stat in our episode centers around the Hawaiian 5-0, Jordan Yamamoto. He held opponents to 0 for 30 at the plate against the slider to begin his major league career. That's just one weapon in his arsenal, along with a four-seamer, a curveball, a cutter, a changeup, and that slider... And those five pitches and the way that he mixes them up made him that intriguing prospect coming up through the Marlins system. Of course, he was on our radar as part of the trade package along with Brinson, Monte Harrison, and Isan Diaz that came here for Christian Yelich. And in 2018, through several different levels, he dominated, which put him even more on a legitimate level as a prospect, including in the Arizona Fall League. Started this year at AA Jacksonville And really more out of convenience than actual performance, he earned that promotion in the middle of the year when the Marlins rotation faced some injuries. There wasn't necessarily that expectation that he would stick in the rotation the rest of the season, but aside from a brief timeout with a forearm strain in September, he did stick in the rotation, and it started with that bang that people remember, the back-to-back scoreless starts, and with the slider in particular, that effectiveness with that pitch continued on for several more starts. To contribute to that 0 for 30 streak for the whole season overall he had his best stats uh on opponents trying to hit that slider as well and his stats at the major league level were about as good as his stats at the double a level which really defies convention but his ability to really alternate between these weapons and have a lot of confidence in each of them that's what makes him somewhat of a viable rotation candidate moving forward even as Guys with higher potential in their arms come up through the Marlins system in these next few waves of talent, ones that rear back and reach a higher velocity or have more dramatic movement in their pitches. But Yamamoto's slider in particular is pretty legit, and he makes it move in a couple of different ways depending on the situation, using it in different counts as well. The variety that he offers gives him a lot of hope of sticking around. This is just his age 23 season, and it's pretty likely that he's going to have some role on the staff coming into opening day 2020 as well if he just stays healthy so that's going to be the big question mark with him as well as like someone like Jeff Brigham that we brought up earlier when you have a history of injuries in your past and if there are variety injuries like with Yamamoto it's been the shoulder in the previously and now the forearm and the build that he has a little bit smaller than your typical major league starting pitcher that's, that's going to lead to the expectation that eventually he'll transition into a more limited role. But for the time being, his first time through the league, with this pitch in particular, the slider, it, he had a lot of success with it, and now that he has all these other weapons that he can disguise the pitch with and offer a lot of variety to both right-handers and left-handers, it gives him some hope of sticking around, and in the meantime, he's uh, just a really fun ambassador for the game. Someone that has a lot of fun on the mounds and isn't afraid to show some personality and speak his mind. And unfortunately, we need to wrap up this segment with the $80 million man, Wei Yin Chen. But the key number with him is not the contract value, but the ERA, a 6.59 earned run average. It was the second worst for a Marlins left hander in a season of 50 plus innings only trailing the washed-up Al Leiter in 2005 when he was a 39-year-old. Chen being converted to a reliever for the first time in his career, given a very undefined role. Yeah, to be fair, when you're a reliever under Don Mattingly, it's your first time relieving, there's a lot that could go wrong in that situation. And he bounced around pretty consistently pitching in low leverage situations, but not always knowing when he was going to pitch or how long those outings would be. And it was a disaster. He set a franchise record for the most home runs allowed in relief in the single season. The problem is he got hammered on anything that was in the zone. His stuff simply isn't there. He didn't profile as a guy that would see an uptick in the stuff with a conversion to the bullpen. He's more of a junk baller um, that tries to get soft contact. And he failed to get soft contact all throughout the year. He had a hot streak there in the middle where he got some help from his defense and had more success at limiting long balls, but that didn't last. And again, at the end of the year, it looked a lot like issues he had at the beginning. He he seldom pitched at all in September once the Marlins actually had their choice of relievers to put into the game, so clearly a low-priority guy, and his trade value was shot. Heading into 2020, one more year left on that infamous contract. $22 million guaranteed. He'll be the highest-paid player on the team by a considerable margin. One of the higher-paid relievers um, in Major League history at any point. To bitch in in the majors uh, in that role for that value. And what I'm hoping is that the Marlins see the light and just let him go his separate way and release Chen. For now, it's holding one of their valuable 40-man roster spots coming up on a time of year where that's a very valuable commodity. Heading into the Rule 5 draft in December, the Marlins hold the number three overall pick. It's a consolation for being one of the worst teams in baseball during their regular season, and their reward for that is being able to pluck a player that couldn't be protected in another organization. And they're not going to be able to use that advantage if they don't have an open spot on the 40-man roster and one of the easiest ways to create that opening is get rid of a player that no longer has value to you. You tried, and by all accounts, he's been a good citizen for this team. Nothing for him to personally feel responsible for. He was given a lot of money, just as anybody would coming off the kind of years that he had earlier in his career. And it just didn't work out. A combination of injury and transition to a new role. And this role treated him very poorly. And the Marlins didn't exactly find clever ways to get the most out of him. and if they're not going to do that, this money is guaranteed to him either way. And he might be more valuable someplace else. My recommendation to the front office decision makers in the best interest of everybody involved is to simply release him. Transitioning from somebody who has no specific role in the Marlins future to one that has a pivotal role in making these big decisions about what they're doing off the field, I present an exclusive interview with Marlins Chief Revenue Officer, Adam Jones. On this episode of Fish Bites, we are joined by a special guest. Many of you already recognize his name, but everybody recognizes his work. He is quite simply one of the most influential people in the Miami Marlins organization right now. Originally hired by new ownership as Senior VP of Strategy and Development, now serving as the Chief Revenue Officer, please welcome Adam Jones. We've been looking forward to this for a while, Adam. Thank you for taking the time to join the show. Uh, My pleasure, Eli. Uh, grateful for the opportunity. Of course. Uh, Let's begin just with how you joined the Marlins in the first place, because you had spent practically all of your professional career with Price Waterhouse, consulting with franchises across several different sports, being able to have a major impact across the industry. Uh, So what were your motivations for deciding you'd rather commit to a single organization and frankly, an organization that was in such a vulnerable position at the time of your hiring two years ago?
2: Uh, well, you know, very grateful for the industry perspective I was able to build, uh, you know, through my career with, with PwC, leading uh, the, the sport practice, working across uh, the industry, as, as you said. Uh, but with uh, the Miami Marlins and uh, the opportunity I had to advise uh, ownership on, on the acquisition of, of the franchise, uh, you know, there was an opportunity to take what I did across the industry uh all of the, the lessons uh learned all of the leading practices uh, observed and, and drive those into uh, a single organization uh that that truly uh has an opportunity to uh evolve uh, and grow uh into uh, a, a best in, in class brand uh a, a world class uh, sport and entertainment enterprise uh and there are a lot of challenges uh that uh, we we accepted in, in day one of uh, of this journey., uh, but that's what makes it as uh, as exciting of uh, an opportunity uh, you know that that be be accepted uh, at day one.
1: Yeah, well, well, you were one of the first hires, really, when the ownership transition happened a couple of years ago, and Wells Dusenberry, the Sun Sentinel, put out a great feature on you prior to the season, where Derek Jeter largely credits you for creating the Demilo campaign which compiles fan feedback, both online and in person at Marlins Park. So that seems to be one of the signature differences that you've made in this organization already. Where did that idea originate from? Were there other franchises across the industry that had already been doing that to the same extent who inspired you in any way?
2: Well, I think the credit is, uh, you know, shared with with Derek, uh, Bruce, our ownership, and, and, you know, largely the entire organization in that, uh we understood you know day 1 uh our, our primary objective is we we need to build trust and in order to build trust we we truly need to understand uh where the organization has been uh before we we can take it forward and the best way for us to develop that direct understanding is to have the conversation uh or in in the case of uh, of DMLO for us to to listen and uh, you know, we were able to launch that campaign initially envisioned as a year one uh, initiative to capture as much perspective and insight and feedback as, as we could and use all of uh, that feedback to inform our, our decisions, our, our plans, uh, whether that's validating some perceptions we had coming in uh, or refining or, or, or pivoting on, on some of that direction based on, on that feedback. And, and what we received was, uh, overwhelming engagement from, uh, a first generation of, uh, a fan as, as well as, uh, the broader community among residents and businesses, uh, and, well, welcoming, welcoming us with, with open arms, uh, with their perspectives. Uh, And what became, was initially a a, a one-year initiative uh, really has been driven into the core uh, of of our organization uh, and how we're going to authentically engage with with the marketplace.
1: Can you try to quantify approximately just how many responses the Marlins get from Demilo online or in the ballpark, either in terms of, I guess hours of footage, or just number of responses that you're sorting through in order to, you know, find some of these solutions that you think work for the franchise.
2: Uh, so there are a number of different channels under the the campaign or, or feedback uh, loops uh, on the survey side. Uh, we receive thousands of uh, responses uh, to uh, the, the the longer form uh, surveys around uh you know people's perceptions of our brand uh, their experiences here at at Marlins Park uh we've run a number of uh series of, of topical questions uh, via uh our social handles uh around uh you know their experience around their preferences and and interests uh and all of that that ingra- engagement has been incredibly uh informative to our our process uh, and then when it came to the the in park booth that we had uh, this prior season, uh, we had over 18 hours of uh, of video uh, content uh, from the 60 second clips that uh, fans uploaded uh, while they were uh, at the ballpark, which created you know tremendous context to the to the feedback, uh, where you know not only were you uh, reading and hearing their words, but you could see their faces and. Uh, what was somewhat um, uh, supporting for us was how balanced uh, much of the sentiment was, how encouraging uh, most of the energy was in terms of uh, you know,
1: the feedback that was being offered. And the first year of that feedback during the 2018 season, that played a pretty major role in the ballpark enhancements that the Marlins implemented last year. Uh, so those included the construction of those reimagined seating sections at the ballpark, the new concession options repainting the interior to match the team's new color scheme from the rebrand. So now that one full season has played out since those went into effect, uh, which of those changes are you most satisfied with? Do you feel that fans have validated the changes in any way with what, you know, the responses they've given you to what they've seen or will take like a larger period of time to know for sure, whether these were the appropriate moves for you to make.
2: Well, I think we're taking the long view on on all of our initiatives. We're we're committed to this market, uh, and and we're here for the long haul. And we'll be putting forth initiatives that, uh, in in terms of return, uh, we we know will will take some time. Uh, but some of the early returns this year uh, were were very encouraging from uh, the launch of the brand and uh, the market's response and the sentiment we have around that brand. Uh, you know, very very encouraging. Uh, to the feedback we received on uh, the enhancements to the ballpark experience, uh, what we hear through DMLO in terms of fan satisfaction, uh, as well as member satisfaction with uh, their overall experience, uh, marked improvement year over year within those scores, uh, as well as their perception around uh, satisfaction with cost of attendance, uh, as well as overall value of, of their experience. Uh, by affecting the price reset in tickets, bringing the 305 menu and the food and beverage, uh, we were able to pull forward uh, a lot of engagement uh, from our existing buyers as well as earn uh, a lot of new buyers. And a lot of our initiatives is broadening the p- appeal or position uh, of Marlins baseball and Marlins Park uh, to not only address uh, you know those av- avid baseball consumers, Uh, but create a a broader social entertainment experience uh, that that competes uh, with uh, the much broader set of leisure and entertainment options that are here
1: in in, in South Florida. Uh, One of the media changes with those enhancements involved uh, deassembling the home run sculpture, the colorful one beyond left center field. And uh, for 2020, it's my my understanding that that's going to be reassembled away from the playing field, but outside on the premises. Aside from that obvious difference in the aesthetic of the whole facility, will more or less the ballpark look very similar in 2020 as it did in
2: 2019? Well, we're excited to reintroduce uh, the the Home Run Sculpture and have it anchor uh, the the East Plaza on the exterior of of the ballpark, and we're appreciative of uh, the partnership we had with uh, the APP and the county and all other stakeholders. Uh, in that decision which created a tremendous opportunity for us to uh, address a gap within uh, our in ballpark experience creating uh, an, an in ball group hospitality space on the lower level of Auto Nation Alley and then create more standing view uh, experience for all fans as part of that expanded uh, Budweiser Terrace and Skyline uh, Terrace experience which uh, from day one on opening day all the way through game 81 uh, was a tremendous vista and, and, a gathering spot or destination for, uh, a lot of Marlins fans as well as, uh, you know, visiting team guests. Uh, you know, as we look to, to 2020, uh, there are additional experiential spaces, uh, that we're looking to, uh, introduce, introduce into the program as well as further investments within, uh, you know, the overall, uh, experience and the cost of, of that experience. Uh, So holding firm on uh, that price set within ticketing, making sure that uh, our product is affordable uh, and that cost is not an objection or reason why not to attend the Marlins game, uh, but also holding on the 305 menu uh, and then looking to address some of the other uh, transactions within uh, the game day. Uh, So we heard a lot of feedback this year around uh, parking rates and uh, moving into 2020, uh, we will affect a, a price reset on uh, both the in-week and weekend rates for parking, uh, within the Marlins Park garages and, and surface lots, uh, uh, uh savings up to 25% off, uh, what fans, uh, uh incurred, uh, here in the, the 2019 year. Uh, similarly on the, the retail side, looking to introduce, uh, new introductory pricing around, you know, many, uh, core apparel items, whether that be a hat or, or a t-shirt. Uh, again, the focus in terms of uh, earning uh, fans and, and attendees moving forward, which we, we need more fans and, and we want to build the attendance so that we have that sustainable business in place so we can continue to reinvest uh, within the talent that we're bringing up into the major leagues, uh, is that we have a value uh, you know, that, that earns the business and, and the, the time of, of, of every consumer out in the
1: market. The parking is a huge one. I'm very excited about that. That's, that's a good idea that even my staff riders and pretty much anybody that's been in the area, I think that was a very common gripe that people had. So that's very exciting to hear. Uh, we're speaking with Adam Jones, ch- Chief Revenue Officer of the Marlins. And Adam, throughout the past couple years, uh, one of the big milestones uh, coming up on the horizon has been the process of negotiating this new regional television deal for the Marlins. Current contract with Fox Sports Florida expires after the 2020 season, uh, and that deal has very legitimately been cited as a reason why the team maintains a low major league payroll. That lack of TV revenue, to some extent, pressured the front office to trade some of the most valuable players on the team two winters ago. And the majority of fans understand why those transactions were necessary, but nobody wants to be in that position again when, you know, they're building up exciting team and have to tear it down all of a sudden. Um, So would you consider those negotiations over television rights to be your number one priority over this next year? Uh, It's among,
2: you know, one of the highest priorities. There's a number of fundamental, you know, building blocks uh, to a sustainable uh, sport enterprise and, uh a tv uh rights agreement at at a market rate and we find ourselves well below uh market rate today uh working through the back end of you know the uh the deal negotiated uh in the early 2000s uh we we have an opportunity in that particular line of business uh, to uh see a considerable gain uh moving uh out of 2020 and into uh 2021 and uh look forward to uh Resetting, you know, that rate to, to market. Uh, but, uh, just as importantly focused on, uh, you know, the, the type of, of content and how we're distributing that content. So as we're looking to build a market, uh, we, we both are, are monetizing, uh, at a rate we deserve, uh, but are creating a product, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, earns the, the trust and engagement of, of residents and, and businesses of market as
1: well. Uh, In terms of the timing of reaching a new deal, um, the Colorado Rockies, for example, had a very similar situation to the Marlins. Their contract was set to expire at the same time with their regional sports network, AT&T Sportsnet, and they just announced an extension of that deal. So do you think there's a possibility that the Marlins uh, are able to hammer out that new deal this offseason, or is that something that um, doing your due diligence you think will have to go more down to the wire before – everybody is satisfied with the outcome of that?
2: Uh, It's a a primary of of focus uh, for the organization. And uh, to the extent uh, we're successful and uh, achieving the desired outcome uh, sooner than later, uh, we will be happy to, you know, close out that that process and and move on to the the next areas of of focus. Uh, But one, a key area of focus is that uh, we want to make sure that, we set this organization up for sustainable success and, and making sure that uh, we, we achieve an outcome on, on that particular deal and find the right partner uh, to deliver, you know, the right product, uh, you know, to our fans uh, and at the right rate, you know, that allows us to build in, you know, fill into those building blocks of, of, of a sustainable business.
1: Just to close out this conversation here, uh, I'd like for the audience to understand that you are relatively young for a top-tier executive management position in Major League Baseball. You're not yet 40 years old. So understanding there's no such thing as a normal career arc in the sports industry, I think some people would consider what you currently have right now to be a, quote, dream job. But uh, maybe you strive for something more. I'm curious if there's anything in particular, whether it's, with the marlins or just long-term in your career that you want to accomplish in the sports industry to feel totally fulfilled and have a certain impact what what is it that keeps you motivated and whatever has helped you get to this point but also some of the traits that you think are important to the rest of your career as as being someone that affects change at the highest level of sports
2: well, I, I think uh, I have a tremendous opportunity as all those who've, uh, you know, joined me in this, uh, you know, this, this venture uh, to, you know, with the, the Marlins, uh, you know, prove out a, a concept, uh, you know, that originated uh, in, in the early 90s around uh, baseball in, in South Florida and uh, myself uh, and, and the rest of this organization hold a, a very bullish outlook on our ability to, uh, prove out that, that concept and, and deliver to, uh, an elevated standard as to what, uh, a sport enterprise can be, uh, within not only this market, but in the overall, you know, sport, you know, industry landscape. Uh, you know, for me, I, I, I seek the challenges and, and with those challenges, the opportunities to, uh, you know, explore new and emerging concepts and, and ideas, uh, continuing to not only uh move our organization forward but uh pioneer uh where possible for for the industry as as a whole uh you know being a thought leader is something that uh i i was very proud to to, to be within my role uh consulting uh within the industry uh but see equal opportunity if not better to uh, continue to serve in in that capacity here uh as as one of the leaders within uh this this up and coming organization
1: well, you've made a lot of progress so far, and being with Fish Stripes and having an eye on this organization, I think it's pretty clear that anybody that's interacted with you since you've come over to the Marlins has been very impressed with just your creativity and, and your way to balance particular initiatives with like a broader goal that the organization has. Uh, Adam Jones, Chief Revenue Officer of the Marlins, uh, thank you so much for coming on Fish Bites, and uh, we hope to check in again in the future as the team continues to progress with this build towards being a sustainable contender. My pleasure,
2: Eli. We're looking looking forward to welcoming everybody back in uh, March uh, for the 2020 season.